Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 73. This week we talk with David Washington about touch interfaces, what's up with the new iPad Pro, and computer science courses that don't exist but should. This episode of the MS Dev Show is brought to you by Infragistics. Their developer toolkits provide world-class controls targeting Windows, Web, iOS, Android, Xamarin Forms, and more. Whether you're an individual developer or part of an enterprise team, they have something for you. Check out the latest today at infragistics.com. This week, we have David Washington. He's Director of Evangelism for Central US at Microsoft, and he calls himself a Microsoft hacker, which is awesome. He's been at Microsoft for 12 years and was previously on the Windows UX team. Welcome, David. How's it going? Pretty good. Thanks for having me. And uh, Carl, sounds like you got some big news. Your background is different. It's not the normal MS Dev Show Blue. No, it's not. Uh, so I've uh, been a little bit quiet on the uh, social media this week, and that's because I took a new job at uh, Concurrency out of uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Okay. So that's a that's an awesome uh, place. There's a, They actually have a ton of other MVPs there, so it's really nice just to be around other people who are just equally passionate and uh, just interested in technology. No, that's great. Everybody I've worked with at Concurrency is like super smart. So that that's exciting. It's so I'll be the exception then. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's Carl. <laughs> I would never say that. I'm always nice no. to you, Carl. <laughs> always nice. Okay. So let's get into listener feedback. And this one this week was awesome. I don't think we want to read the whole thing. Do you just want to read snippets of this? I'll read what I read. Uh, okay, go ahead. I, I thought it was awesome. So we got uh, a really nice long feedback from Chris Davis on Facebook. He said, uh, hey, guys, every time that I see you have a new episode, he gets super excited. So please keep up the great work. Uh, He liked the episode about VS Code. Mm -hmm. And as a student, um, the thing was is, you know, it's it's nice on your desktop to go straight to Visual Studio, but he has Linux on his laptop. So um, he had um, not really looked at VS Code because of Atom.io. And he just thought it was, you know, that same association. But he switched to it, and he said he's been rocking out the ASP.NET projects. Yeah, told uh, you so. Yep. Told you so. Um, and he says it uh, had a real impact on his workflow. And, uh, and he, once again, thanks us for uh, putting together the show. But uh, we'd like to thank you, Chris, for putting together this awesome feedback by giving you the ultimate Infragistics license. Okay. So if anybody else wants to get that, all you have to do is write an awesome piece of feedback like Chris did. And uh, you can get it on uh, Facebook, uh, iTunes review. You could tweet to us, put it on the website, all sorts of ways. Okay. And I'm going to do, I'm going to do a, a, a free um, referral here. So uh, one thing that I watched recently, I watched a, a, a plural site video on VS code and it was actually amazing. I think it was John Papa who did it. And he went through and talked about all the different shortcuts and everything. And my mind was blown because there's, you know, Emmett's built in, but there's all these different, you know, shortcuts for doing like multi-cursor work. So if you are using Visual Studio Code, you want to take it to the next level, check out that Pluralsight course. It's just absolutely insane. Okay, so let's get into the news. This first one here, Elastic Beanstalk. So Carl, how much have you looked into this? So I saw the announcement for this come out the other day, and it looks like it's something really cool. So if I understand this correctly, um, this is an AWS service that you kind of throw your application on there, and it just scales it. It handles everything automatically just to make sure it won't go down. So if you need bandwidth, it'll throw extra bandwidth at you. If you need more processing or memory, it'll just kind of scale that up as you need it. Yeah. So like, you know, Amazon, or uh, I should say Azure is like my first language, right? So like whenever I look at anything AWS related, I always have to sort of translate it back to my native language. And um, so I was reading through this and it's, you know, it's, it's always tough because it's never a one-to-one mapping, but the, the Azure equivalent for a lot of these things, I think is websites, if I'm understanding this That's correctly. What I was I w- too. That's what I said. Yeah. Cause I was primarily advanced or uh, interested in uh, .NET and Node.js and both of those things, what you do is you basically, um, I, I look through their, their tooling and how they do it, and they do it through a Git repo, you know, it's how you do a deploy. And in Azure websites, you basically do the same thing. You can take that, that Git repo, push it up there, and then it will automatically manage it. You know, you don't really care like how it works or, or anything like that. And then you can turn on things like uh, auto scaling, but it looks similar to that. So I don't know if you had any other impressions on it, Carl. Uh, no, uh, they just mentioned that for this service, there's no additional costs. The only thing that you pay for is yeah. the, the actual resources that you need. Yeah. And which is the same on, uh, on Azure as well. Um, okay. Yeah. We always like to, you know, we like to, to mention other things that are out there and this was an announcement this week. So we're, you know, we definitely try to cover everything. Uh, and actually speaking of which Amazon web services in plain English, and 
Carl, I don't know why I didn't think of this until this morning, but uh, I need to do this for Azure. Yes. Yeah. Oh my God. I don't, you guys, I, 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 this would be I read this like five times and I've heard people refer to me and this morning I'm finally like, I'm like, is there one for Azure? I'm like, why don't I just make it? So, um, yeah, Jason, maybe I'll, maybe I'll whip that up. Jason, what would be great is if you just mm-hmm. built the same, like built a table that had like yeah. all of the plain English words from this table, the AWS ones, and then the Azure one in the same table. Yeah. Cause that, that's what sort of made me think of this is. I wish that this page had an extra column that said, you know, equivalent Azure resource, you know, or or maybe, you know, put them on sort of a level playing field. But uh, so, you know, for anybody who hasn't seen this yet, it basically lists all of the different services on on, uh, Amazon. And to be fair, like they (laughs) I think they do a worse job of naming things like we I think our our names in Azure are a little bit more um, obvious what they are, because on on AWS, they have EC2, which most people know, you know, is virtual machines. Or I think on Azure, we usually just call them, you know, Azure virtual machines or Azure IaaS. Um, but they have things like S3, uh, which we call blob storage, which I think is pretty obvious. But it goes through all their different services. And, you know, if you are wanting to understand, like, what the, the you know, variety of services that you can get from Amazon, this is actually a nice way to, that you can do that without having to, like, decode their name and and go look through all the documentation and everything. So yeah, I'm trying to figure out there's, there's you know, the only thing is by the, t- you know, if I, if I did it this weekend, I bet you on Monday, like three other people have done it. So <laughs> I'm not going to use that as an excuse though. I'm going to see if I can whip something up and get something out there. That'd be awesome. But, uh, but no promises, uh, computer science courses that don't exist, but should, this yes. was cool, Carl. I shared this one. So go ahead. Yeah. So what this guy, this guy had a blog post, like things that, you know, we probably should be teaching in school. So, you know, some of the things is like unlearning object oriented programming, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, it's, it's important to know what a function is, you know, not just, you know, whatever your object oriented thing is. Um, Yeah. Method on a, on a, on a particular object. Yeah. Just plain functions. Yeah, and classic software studies. Let's look at like some of the original yeah, applications, like VisiCalc and and Zork and MacPaint, and some of those. Yeah, Photoshop would be another good one because I think you can go download the source code for Photoshop V1. Yes, and and it's amazingly short, and it was an amazingly powerful program. And then even MacPaint, um, you know, I I I used that back in 1984. I remember that, and it was you know it was just amazing, and like everything has really been a variation of that ever since. Yeah, the, the next one I think is really useful is writing fast code in, writing fast code in slow languages. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of times, you, I mean, you're just restricted to a certain technology set, and you still should be able to understand how to make your code run fast. Just write it all in assembly, Carl. That's that's what all the cool people are doing. Yeah. <laughs> now that's the point of this class, right? Is to show like, hey, we can use something that's interpreted and get you know, the same, if not better speed. And in fact, we can spend more time optimizing or, um, or just providing more value to the user. So yeah, that's definitely yeah. good. And then the last one is uh, a psychology class, obsessions of the programmer mind, <laughs> like things that we fixate on, like code for formatting and taxonomy and type systems and splitting projects into tiny files. Uh, yep. So I, you know, I, I think tabs if, versus spaces. I, I think if there's a <laughs> university that I could uh, like attend remote or something that had all these classes, I would take them. Yeah, because then you you know then then whenever you talk to other developers, you just be like, yeah, you know, I already, we covered this in school. Like, we don't want to talk about this again. This is just a waste of time. <laughs> so that is pretty cool. And then uh, I shared this, and then uh, I had a friend on Facebook. I think it was Vim that he mentioned. He's like, you you should also have a class for Vim. <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> I think you should have. You know, like I was mentioning earlier, that that VS Code video with all those shortcuts. Like, I think there there should be something on that as well. I I just. I'm just terrible with the shortcuts and I know some people are really good with them and, and watching that it, it's so hard for me to just pick up those, those shortcuts. You know, I, I, it takes so much practice, but I, you know, I'm, I've committed to doing it, but um, it's just amazing. The people that have mastered those, how quick they are. And I saw like, you know, in John Papa's video, he went through and, and he had like a list of uh, NPM modules in this file and they were all, you know, in quotes and then they had the version number after them. And he's like, but we want a command line that says NPM install and has a list of these things. And he's just like, you know, just he, he told you what keys he was using each time. But instead of like going line by line and like copy paste, he just hit some things, did some multi cursor work and magically selected all those and got them onto one line. Like he did it like the correct way that, you know, probably nobody does. Uh, but it was just it was such a good demonstration. OK, what's up next? 3D print your own TSA master keys from GitHub. <laughs> this is pretty wild. Yeah, so I mean, one of the big news security things that uh, 
came out recently is the Washington Post had printed images to like the, these TSA master keys, and people were able to reverse engineer and actually make keys to open these locks. Mm-hmm. If you had a lock that can be opened by the TSA. And and the cool thing was here is uh, we have a link in the show notes to the GitHub repository that has files necessary to 3D print all of these TSA master keys. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty cool that they were able to do this from the picture. The first thing I didn't understand at first, and you clarify this for me, I didn't understand how they'd get the size right. Like they publish these and they're like, oh, we don't know if they work. We haven't tested them yet. And uh, and I said, how do they get the size right? Like they could be like twice as big, but you had mentioned that I think the the sizes are actually published online, or or at least they're, they're standard blanks. Yeah, okay, because standard all, because all blanks. because all keys work off of a blank. Yeah, so they know how big that is, and there's yep. a piece that there's pieces of the key that you never cut, so they know the length and they know how wide it's supposed to be. Yeah, so from there they can figure out the rest of the scaling. That is pretty cool. That is just neat that they were they were able to do that. I don't I don't lock in my luggage because I know somebody could just cut it anyway. So, <laughs> uh, okay. So the last thing I want to talk about was the iPad Pro, and I'd like to hear what your opinions are. I mean, obviously, as Microsoft people, I think I think anybody who's in the Microsoft world looked at this and is like, oh, this is a ripoff of the uh, Surface Pro. And uh, I guess I would agree with that assessment. I, I've heard a lot of people saying like, oh, no, that's not the case. And it's the natural evolution of this or this or this. OK, that's fine. But um, I think most of the things that can be said about this have already be, been said. The only thing that I haven't heard anybody else bring up that I think is kind of interesting from my point of view is that they basically copied the unsuccessful surface, right? So the unsuccessful surface was the, was the arm version, um, you know, version one, version two, you know, the surface pro two was considered a somewhat of a success. And then the surface pro three has been a huge success, but everybody was kind of putting down the initial versions that were on arm. And that's exactly what this is. This doesn't run, you know, quote unquote, real apps on it. Um, so it's funny hearing before it's even out, everybody saying this is like the, the greatest thing ever. Um, so yeah, what do you guys think? Yeah, this was interesting to see it announced. Like, you know, most people thought it was going to come out, but when I actually saw them do it, two things, <laughs> two things stood out to me. Yeah. One, you know, a few things were just blatant copies, like side by side windows and stuff like that. Like yeah. we were talking about that a long time ago. Um, but and, and I'm actually okay. Yeah, with that. it's like, fine. I'm, I'm okay with company A copying yeah, company B, I mean, especially since these are not you know, I, I don't know. I, there's a lot of things that I wish we would copy from Apple, <laughs> you know, just being honest. Yeah, and true. it's OK if they copy certain things that, that are just sort of fundamental game changing things. The thing that stood out, though, is that, like, I think you hit on it um, I, like Windows 8 and the Surface, I think, was the original Surface was an important product because it kind of brought mm-hmm. brought Microsoft and brought Windows even into the conversation about mobile. Yeah. But um, it was incomplete, as we saw, right? It didn't dynamically scale with stuff like Continuum. It didn't have great mouse support. Um, it didn't have the polish in the hardware that people would expect. And it's funny, in a lot of ways, I think the iPad Pro is, like, just beginning to experience all of those things, right? Like, yeah, I assume there's, like, there's no mouse on this keyboard. And, like, nope. you know... Well, nor does iOS really even yeah, doesn't support exactly. a cursor whatsoever. And they're a long, long way away from that. And like maybe they'll say like, oh, you'll just reach up and touch it. But of course, it was Steve Jobs who was like, no, people don't want to do this, right? People don't want to reach out their their hands, their arms will be yeah. covered. So, um, you know, we we learned we thought more people would would reach up and touch the screen when we released Windows 8. Uh, we found that like people just want a mouse; they want the mouse to be great. So I think um, a lot of people will see that. The other thing that stood out to me is like the keyboard, which isn't included but is kind of essential, I think, to the value prop of it, given how big the screen is is like incredibly unpolished. Like, did you see the pictures of what it looks like when it's shut? Yeah. And I, I've heard that it's pretty bad. It's gross. It's like, yeah. ugh. like, why would you release something that's that ugly and terrible? Well, they don't have, I don't, they don't have a lot of experience in building no. that type of keyboard. <laughs> no. So this is, this is new for them. Yeah. So I don't know. It, it, to me, it seemed like a very like V1 beta pre-release product, you know, and it'll be mm-hmm. niche in the beginning, but I'm sure they'll evolve it and it will improve just like the surface did. But yeah. um, I think they just see like, oh, like the Surface Pro 3, you know, it's gaining traction. Um, people, you know, think that's interesting. We should have an offer that, you know, competes with that. And it'll take time before it's actually as good. But we'll see. Yeah. 
Yeah. So one, one thing I'm curious about with it is uh, looking at the pencil in particular, they may, mentioned very early on in the presentation that it, you can both use the pencil and touch it at the same time. And if you look, the pencil is just huge. It's very long and nobody in the demos got anywhere close to the screen. And I'm kind of one of those people. I, I like to rest my palm on it and use it. So I'm wondering if they don't have like good palm detection detecting technology. And it's maybe one of the reasons why one, that's such a big good point. pencil. Good point. That's um, interesting. I, Cause I actually heard the palm rejection or detection is actually pretty good. So um, I, you know, I don't know, but if I was giving a demo, I'd probably avoid any <laughs> potential true, true. <laughs> mix up anyway. So, but you know, looking at um, kind of it from a consumer point of view, instead of, you know, our kind of technical worldview, um, the iPad in general has been great. It's, it's, generally a rock solid device. It's yeah. really quick and it's really polished. So I'm looking at it like it's, it's bigger. Now I, I don't think I would have a use for this, but I know uh, like uh, my mother-in-law, she likes like huge text on her computer. Yeah. And I think like being able to have an iPad that's just bigger where she can just stretch it out yeah. w- would be great. But at that point, it's still a, mo- a more expensive device. So to me, it's it's trying to fit too many different things or it could do too many different things. And it just doesn't quite hit any of those sweet spots. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you're like a, you know, if you're somebody who wants something powerful, let's say you want to take this on a plane, which it would actually be, well, actually now that I think about it, it's actually a terrible plane machine because <laughs> the, the kickstand's not built in, it's built on the keyboard. And because what I do on the plane, I always take the keyboard off my surface and I watch movies or whatever. Um, but you know, the, the funny thing is if you're, if you're, let's say you, you, you consider yourself, somewhat of an enthusiast or a pro and you, you go buy this thing. The reality is you're going to spend more than you are on a MacBook air and it does less other, unless you need the pen, the pencil, sorry, whatever. I was just thinking <laughs> about that. Like we need to, we need to, you know, I don't know. I, somebody needs to invent a tablet. They're like, we have both a pen and a pencil, <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I don't know. It's, it, it's kind of weird. I, I'm curious to see how popular it is. I, my prediction is it's going to, you know, they're going to obviously going to sell, you know, a good amount of these, but I, I would be shocked if it was as big of a hit as like the Surface Pro 3, just because this can't, it can't replace anything else other than the current iPad. Um, and then it really, and then that point, it is just a bigger iPad that has a pencil. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, I guess we'll, I guess we'll have to wait and see. We probably talked about it too much already, <laughs> but it's, what's interesting is they charge a hundred bucks for the pencil. That's separate. 169 bucks for the smart keyboard. Um, so, I mean, when you, when you get into this, it's going to be super expensive. One thing I like on the, on the Mac, you know, like OS 10 platform is like iMovie and they have iMovie for the, the, um, for the iPad pro and obviously on the iPad. And I don't, I don't know if I'd even be able to replace like that simple thing with it. I'm not, I can't think of anything that I use, you know, a laptop or a desktop for that I'd be able to replace this with. Um, you know, I don't know. And I'm honestly, on my service pro three, I use the, I find myself not using the pen very often. I tend to use the, the keyboard. And the keyboard on the Surface Pro 3 is actually pretty good. Okay, well, we can move on. Because um, actually, I have a, I'm going to have a question about this later. So I can I can save it. Oh, and actually, before we move out of the news, the only last thing I wanted to mention, I don't know if you guys watch this, but Sachin Nadella was at Dreamforce. And one of the things, and and this was sort of a joke, but I thought it was kind of funny too, is he uh, he showed off the, the iPhone Pro. <laughs> and basically, it was the he had an iPhone there, and he immediately was like, "This isn't mine, but you know, it's an iPhone Pro." And uh, it basically the whole entire screen was filled up with Microsoft apps, which I think is pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> Shows off the the strengths of uh, both platforms, but it was an entire screen of just Microsoft apps. And think, in fact, I think Microsoft has more than a full screen of of apps on there, but it was like a full screen of like good um, iPhone apps. So I thought that was kind of neat. Okay, so let's talk to David Washington. So. Uh, David, before, before we get into some of the questions, when we were talking in the pre-show, you had mentioned that you had worked on the file copy graph in windows, which is, which is really cool. Like that was, that was a pretty neat feature whenever that came into windows. Uh, but I wanted to talk to something that, uh, that you didn't work on, but I know that, you know, the person who worked on it, which is the file copy estimates. Yes. <laughs> and, and the reason that this is amusing for anybody who hasn't seen this, there's an XKCD comic out there and I actually pulled it up here. So it's this guy in a car. And he, he, you know, he calls the, the person, uh, uh, that he's, he's going to their house. Right. And he goes, I'm just outside of town. I should be there in about 15 minutes. And then a second later goes, actually, it's looking more like six days. Uh, no, wait, 30 seconds. <laughs> and the, so the caption is the author of the windows file copy dialogue, visit some friends. <laughs> um, so yeah, this thing's been like ruthlessly made fun yeah. of. 
And, uh, and you had mentioned like people wanted to, there was talk about throwing like machine learning at this or some crazy approaches. I don't know if there's anything you wanted to mention on that. So it's, it's funny. There's a whole history of copy estimates. It's in the early days, like, um, there were some rudimentary estimates baked into XP, um, Mm -hmm. and windows 2000, but not that many people talked about them just because like the size of files that we were copying was smaller. The, you know, the number of files we were copying at the same time was smaller. And then like around windows Vista and, um, we, there was like this convergence, like a lot of things happen, right? Like mm-hmm. the, the team tweaked it a little bit. They're like, Oh, we can do a better job improving the estimates. And they did. Like they can have data that tells you, like we improved the estimates. Okay, um, so it's like prove it, provably they better. They did. Uh, the Windows Vista team did. Um, but like people were actually looking at them um, because they were like copying these massive three gigabyte movie files from their you know mm-hmm. cameras and stuff that they weren't doing before. And um, there's just like it was crazy because um, there was a whole time when people were like, we need to just keep improving the estimates. We need to keep you know adding more technology to improve it. And then when you, we, it's like half the window yeah, code base, you know, it's an amazing <laughs> amount of code. Like if you actually look at it, yeah. like it's, it's really advanced stuff. Like there's a lot of people talking about machine learning now, but like there's yeah. some really advanced, crazy technology that, that went into those estimates. But if you actually looked at it, like the number of data points that you have when you first sample, start sampling the copy, um, yeah. is just not enough. Like any kind of, you know, reasonable data scientist. W- yeah. I mean, if I told you, uh, you know, hey, this file has been copying for three seconds and here's the data from each second. It was at 20 megabits, 30 and 17. Yeah. Like, you know, tell me how long this is going to take. Exactly. And <laughs> the thing is, the, the estimates are actually amazing. The problem is the like um, the throughput of the actual copy is really mm-hmm. wildly different. Right. Like, oh, yeah, you know, yeah. if you start if you open up a program or do anything that does I.O., or especially network, if network changes at all, then it's going to change. And over time, it'll average out. But people look at the estimate in the beginning, obviously, right? Because that's what they need to know. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, two problems. Remember last time we was, you were used to estimated time remaining. And people just yeah. thought that we were just estimating time remaining and not copying. But actually, we were copying just estimating, oh, really? okay. estimating while copying. That is still frustrating. <laughs> yeah, it's still terrible. frustrating to me because I'm like, just start copying. It's like, we're <laughs> like right you can copy it in that amount of time, but apparently it is. Okay, exactly. that's good to know. So um, when we changed the copy dialogue in Windows 8, we were like, hey, let's just look at what actually helps people, not like just mm-hmm. the best technology. Um, <laughs> and we found that people just wanted to have information so they could like make a decision about what the best thing was to do. Yeah. Do I get a coffee yeah. or do I like exactly. drive to Starbucks or <laughs> do I have lunch? Yeah. And then we wanted to give them control um and we found that just putting the pause button there like helped inform that like coffee decision like oh actually like i might want to sleep my computer and i don't know what's going to happen if i sleep it while it's copying oh it's going to hit the pause button and make sure everything is okay um and then also you may have noticed we added just like count number of files copied number of files remaining it's exactly the same information as a progress dialog so all of our like you know, super brilliant developers were like, why would you do that? That's just like worthless information. But we found that people on the whole were like, oh, this is great. Like, this is way better now. Like, you're actually telling me the estimate. And even while we're mm-hmm. estimating the time, the time remaining, you can still see, like, you can actually see it's copying. It's not like it's just, you know. Okay. Yeah, yeah, And And that's that's the interesting thing, right? So, yeah, there's there's, there's two things that, that to me sound like it or seems like it affects the speed. Or one is just your, the speed of your connection. Like, it varies, yep. right? And and I always was thinking like, what if, yeah, what if you're, you're at like a hundred megabits copy speed and then it does that for a half hour. And then for the last 60 seconds, it's been, you know, 10 times slower. Like, do you assume that it's going to stay slow or do you look at the full history and you're like, oh, well, you know, it was fast. So it'll probably get fast again. Like that, that fundamentally makes it so you can never have a good prediction. Exactly. You, you can just cross your fingers and hope for the best. And then the other thing, like you mentioned was the number of files what what ends up this always gets me is it'll you have like an ISO and then like a thousand like one byte files yep. and what ends up happening it's like oh yeah the ISO yep. it's just cruising along and then it gets to those one byte files and it's like there's there must be some overhead huge like overhead. just processing a yeah. file right so then you know it's only like you know a hundred more bytes but it's just like copy 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 yep. copy you know and there's like it, it's almost impossible to predict that as well unless you start figuring that into the algorithm it gets really crazy yeah it was funny like uh christine staywitz she's no longer at microsoft but um we were working together a ton on file copy and we were like you know what like we should just do a lot of extra stuff besides in the ux to just make copy faster 
So we like pushed on the file system team. We're like, oh, we want to do like more multi-threaded copy and we want to do all this extra stuff that like no one was ever asking them to do. So in Windows 8, um, for small files, copy actually did get quite a bit faster. Um, okay. So, but yeah, that's, there is huge overhead, um, huge overhead. That is funny. You're solving the problem of like better estimates when, when you can actually go and actually make it yeah, faster. We did, we did both. Like, but that, that was the thing. And, was and good. Windows, yeah, before we're like, oh, let's just keep adding more technology, you know, to the, you know, the estimates. We're like, no, no, like, let's actually, switch which, up. which at some point it's going to become, yeah, exactly. and it's going to start crashing. Like your files will stop copying because it's like. <laughs> Sorry, something went wrong because our file, you know, estimates are so complicated. Or I was worried what? that it would become self-aware and we'd reach the singularity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nobody sees it coming in the file copy dialogue. I can tell you that. <laughs> but that's what it's going to be. It's going to be like some gas pump or like the file copy. You know? <laughs> awesome. Well, anyway, uh, yeah, I just wanted to go on that little tangent. Now we, now we can get back. We're going to focus on on the the really important things. Um, so the reason that, that, you know, we asked you to come on, we were at that conference and, and, uh, well, I can give you, I'll give you the, the real reason why we had you on, which was you had a, a presentation on, uh, I think it was called creating user experiences that don't are creating touch experiences that don't suck. So the real reason was I didn't get to go to that, uh, cause I think we were recording at that time. <laughs> so I want to talk to you and actually find out what you, uh, what you talked about. Uh, but why don't we start with, um, uh, just your background at Microsoft, like, uh, you know, what do you do uh, at Microsoft? Sure. Um, so I'm the director of uh, developer evangelism for the central United States. So my team, what we do is we're all developers and we live in the metros and communities in the central U.S. from Columbus to Chicago, big team in Chicago, uh, St. Louis, um, Austin, Dallas, and uh, Minneapolis, I'm actually based in Minneapolis. And our, our job is to go hack and build with you in your communities. And, you know, one, just, you know, see what you're up to and, you know, build with you. And then also see, see what we can do to make your life better, you know, to help you be more successful. Teach you something that you didn't already know, whether it's a Microsoft technology or an open source technology or even, you know, like an iOS or you know, Android thing. Like we're, we're there. We're all, we're all just interested in building stuff. So. Um, that's what my team does. Um, it's super exciting and cool. Um, my background, we were talking about the file copy. Uh, my background is in engineering. <laughs> I'm kind of a lifer at Microsoft. Uh, I went to UW-Madison and I started an internship in 02, actually on Microsoft CRM uh, version 1.0. <laughs> Oh wow! <laughs> it was funny. We're like, yeah, back in the good old days. I, our our general manager, um, the 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 VP in charge of Microsoft Business Solutions, were like, yeah, we're doing this really scrappy startup, you know, around Microsoft CRM. We don't know if it's going to fail. There's already entrenched things out there like Salesforce. You know, it's you know the product was really buggy um, at when we first started, but it was really cool to kind of experience that in the beginning. Uh, it's funny, and th- that manager that I had when I first started was was actually Satya Nadella. Um, so it was kind of cool. Oh, really? <laughs> kind of cool to have that um, to see him kind of grow throughout the company. Oh, so you you reported directly? No, to no, I was an intern, so I was oh, okay. like, you know, just some oh, some I kid. Gotcha, I gotcha. But um, he was. Oh, but he was running. He the was project. he was running Microsoft Business Solutions, <laughs> and uh, CRM was an incredible risk because if you remember Dynamics and all the business solutions things at the time, those were all acquisitions, and CRM was the first like homegrown Microsoft like mm-hmm. business solutions uh, thing. Um, and we didn't know what we were doing at the time. It was all like web apps and like stuff <laughs> like that. And it was all like crazy. Yeah. So um, it was fun. It was fun. Um, and then I worked so, on windows. We talked about windows. Um, yep. So this year you were at that on that conference and you gave a talk. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so the, the talk I gave at that conference uh, was, you know, building touch experiences primarily on the web is kind of the subtext that don't that mm-hmm. don't suck. Um, how mm-hmm. many of you have like been to a mobile website or even you know it's not much different uh, a, a mobile app that's really just a website wrapped up in Cordova or something like that, and mm-hmm. it's just really terrible, right? Like, yeah. and you don't really know, like you don't have the energy to say like why it's terrible or like it just sucks and you just you just abandon it you're like oh no thanks like i'll just use something else yeah and it's and it's not necessarily terrible because it's cordova right i mean it's just it's just terrible because it's terrible exactly and you know what's funny is in the native world you know there's a lot of extra work that you have to do in order to to build your app whether it be learning objective c or learning um you know learning you know the controls that are available to native 
And if you're a web developer, it's like, oh, it's just easier. I'll just do all the web stuff I'm already used to. Yeah. And um, the the challenge is <laughs> Carl's Carl's like walking around with a with his podcast. Uh, I was just, like, nobody, so, everybody listening can't see that, but that's I was fine. like it's somebody just, just pretty, disappeared. Where did he go? It's pretty amusing. Uh, <laughs> okay, go. Sorry, go ahead. No, um, so the challenge is when you're building using web frameworks, if you're not using something super polished like Ionic, mm-hmm. which has touch and native native uh, controls, kind of in mind with the framework you're missing a lot of those default behaviors that people expect. And even worse, if you like go further and try to do something custom, like try to do like, oh, I'm going to go build Polar Refresh or I'm going to go build this thing, um, you can do a really terrible job at it. And, you know, the web is in an, in an amazing spot right now, right? There's amazing capabilities. Like almost every mobile platform has native touch scrolling, there's um, the touch, um, there's touch uh, pointer events that are uh, available in all the browsers now. Um, that's a nice standard. There's CSS hardware, hardware accelerated transitions. Um, so there, there's all these amazing things, CSS transforms, all these amazing mm-hmm. capabilities in the web that make up what you need to build a great touch experience that's, that's native um, on the web. Um, but a lot of the work, the, a lot of the gap here is People just don't think about it. So the talk in the talk, we're actually building a little, you know, simple, naive little custom control. Um, I call it. It's a touch button. It's the sort of thing that um, yeah. you might want to might want to add to a mobile app um, to to you know change the font or something like that. And um, we go through all of those steps that you need to consider when you're building something for touch. Um, and you don't want it to suck basically. Um, and it's really yeah. just, just that progression. Carl, I got to interrupt this for just a second. And I want to talk about infragistics. Yeah. If you comment, uh, on Facebook, on Twitter, on our website, you have a chance to win the ultimate license from infragistics. And this is pretty cool because it covers a lot of stuff. Um, they have controls for Android, iOS, windows phone, windows eight, ASP.NET, MVC, WPF, jQuery, HTML5, just tons of stuff. And they even have stuff for Xamarin Forms. So if you're trying to hit all three major mobile platforms with one, they got controls to help you out there. If you need tabular stuff uh, with their grids, they got really cool controls to help make that look uh, just really sharp. Charting, gauges, barcodes, it's all pretty simple using their controls. And if you just have some uh, simple prototyping needs, they have a product called Indigo Studio too. It lets you get that prototype done. So you can show this to the stakeholders and, you know, sell your ideas. Yeah. What I love about that, you can just send them a link and they can actually navigate through the app. But uh, what, like you mentioned earlier, all of these controls across all these different platforms, this is great. I mean, most people don't just develop one type of app now. So being able to to go and use these controls in every type of app all under one ultimate license is is really big plus. If we don't select you uh, each week, you could try again next week. and. If you can't wait, they have free demos, so you can try it out for a month, download the demos, and try it today. Yeah, check it out at infragistics.com. They're a free trial, so you have nothing to lose. And remember, each week, if we pick your comment on the show, you get the ultimate edition for free, which includes everything. We thank them for their support of the MS Dev Show. So let's let's kind of get back to the to the fundamentals. I was I was thinking about this before the show. Like, how do we, you know, now that touch exists, I was just thinking back, like, especially in the context of something like the iPad pro or even just an iPad or a surface or something like that, where we're really pushing, uh, for, for, uh, touch, I guess the fundamental question I have, let's pretend like we had touch technology, like back in the early days, like when computers, when we were first, like, you know, it was like terminal, you know, like we first finally had a display on there. Imagine if somehow we had amazing touch technology back then, and it was super inexpensive, uh, before the mouse was invented. Do you think we still would have invented the mouse? Like is, is touch fundamentally better somehow, you know, and it's hard, it's really hard to like picture not having that. And I've seen applications where they can do a great job without a mouse, but like, can we just, can we, can we live without the mouse? I mean, is there a time in the future when you wouldn't have a mouse and it would be fully touch? That's a great question. It's, it really just boils down to tools. You know, it is kind of funny that we started with the mouse cause it is kind of this mm-hmm. extra level of abstraction and yeah. um, it's a it's a useful tool, as we all know, for productivity. Like sometimes you can get a lot more precise with 
a mouse um, when you're even when you're doing some some stuff in Photoshop or you're doing something when you're writing code. Like it's just faster to not have to reach your hand off the keyboard. So as a tool, yeah. there's nothing fundamentally wrong with it. Um, however, touch is just like a more straightforward you know modality. You know, it's just yeah. And and the the thing is, if we would have started with that world, then we would never be running into the sort of problems we run into now in some of these mobile apps because like when you're designing for your mouse, like when you're designing for like mouse and keyboard apps on the web or in a desktop app, you really just design the pixels in a way that's logical, right? Like, oh, mm-hmm. I'm going to put the nav bar on the left, I'm going to have a toolbar, and then I'm going to have to make sure I have lots of screen real estate to like do my my coding or whatever my thing is. And like as long as it's logical and it's not like totally a lot of clicks or anything like that, it works. The thing about touch that's a little bit different and the thing that like people who design consumer products and people who design like tool, like, you know, construction equipment and, you know, drills and spoons and stuff think about all the time is, um, you know, you're really designing for physical anatomy, right? Like, you know, people's, you know, like anatomy is, is like a sloppy thing, right? There's like a science fiction mm-hmm. short story. Have you heard of that? Like they're made of meat. Have you heard of that, that short story? Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or, yeah with like the when the aliens uh, meet humans. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're like, oh, like I went and met them, and they're so gross. They're like, mm. <laughs> they're just bags. Yeah, of they're meat. bags of meat, and they talk by like flapping meat together, and they're like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or even the Star Trek interpretation where it's you know ugly bags of mostly water. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, and the thing is, that's so true because like you know the the pristine you know digital only mouse abstraction world that we live in with the mouse and keyboard is nothing like the touch like and consumer you know consumer uh you know interaction world where you're actually touching the screen right like your your meaty pads your fingers are actually touching the screen and dragging stuff around and mm-hmm. you know you have to burn physical energy to like touch a button in the upper left hand corner like you know just it's funny you know i don't know if you have an iphone but like in the early days of iphone like you could kind of touch the whole screen you know it's like this three three and a half inch screen or whatever but then, like, when you got to the iPhone, I don't know, was it 5, when they made it longer, um, it, it was fine. Like, it looked, set, looked, looked fine, and you could still touch it. The challenge is, if you had that back button in the upper left-hand corner, or worse, like, the little close button in the upper right-hand corner, you actually, a lot of times, you had to, like, shuffle it in your hand or use a different hand. And if you think about, like, your body as a machine, there's, like, lots of really low-energy, like, machines like little tiny machines like moving your your little fingers that that are great at precise movement but like Mm -hmm. if you have to move your arm there's like all of these like very high energy like you know muscles in your shoulder and in your back yeah and like those those things add up like if you have to use your shoulder to like touch something that usually would you would have to only use like the little tiny muscles in your thumb to do like people don't know how to describe it but that actually is what makes something really suck, right? If you have to do a lot of extra physical work to do something that should be effortless, um, is, is kind of like what makes things worse. So, um, that's okay. like so that's, some of the things that we so talked about. That's like about. the cutoff point yeah. is, is probably the amount of, of physical energy that exerted that. Yeah. And, you know, as silly as it sounds, right? Like, oh, I got to so pick hard. up my arm, so my, my whole arm. <laughs> I got to pick it up. No. And the thing is, it's funny. It's not actually hard. It's just like harder than the thing that like you're doing otherwise. Um, it's funny if you think about like how we've evolved, like our precise muscles, our, our fingers are really great at grasping, mm-hmm. right? Like we're good at like picking yeah. up tools and stuff like that. But like our arms are great at like throwing heavy things and stuff like that. Yep. And like the reality is like if you have to use those unevolved like caveman muscles to do like things that like your like modern brain are trying to do, it just like, it's just not good. Like you just don't want to do that. So those are, that's like yeah. some of the things that we talk about in the talk. No, that's, that's such a great point. And, and it really explains too, like, you know, you take somebody who, who uses a device for an hour each day and a tablet is probably going to work for them, you know, maybe with a keyboard, yeah. uh, depending on if they're trying to do like text input, but if they're just trying to get their stuff done in an hour, 
then they're probably going to be happy. They probably want everything to be touch for us. I mean, we're sitting in a computer, you know, uh, <laughs> optimistically eight hours. <laughs> um, I won't go into the real number, but, uh, you know, eight hours a day, like, you know, that, that physical idea is sort of, uh, it, it's just exhausting to us. And then th- I think that's why us, you know, people who are doing this all day really go back to a, a mouse. Yep. Well, and I think, you know, it, it's easy to think about it as a dichotomy, you know, with like iPad or, Mm-hmm. keyboard or you know all of that world and the reality is there, it's just tools like people want to use the right tool for the job yeah and you know i i kind of you know I, I do commend apple for saying like oh sometimes a keyboard is the best way to insert text you know into an email like you can have an amazing touch keyboard but like the physical keyboard is just going to be better um yeah so like that makes sense and i think we'll kind of continue to be in this world you know i think that microsoft is leading on with continuum where you'll just kind of adapt and have the right tools at the right time, whether it be a mouse or whether it be touch, and you can kind of flex and, and flow depending on your situation, right? Like if you're standing up and you're like walking from the plane to, you know, to your seat, then, you know, touch is going to be great. Um, if you're, you know, in full productivity mode, even if you're, you just sat down at Starbucks for five minutes, you still want a keyboard. So you don't have to decide like when you leave your house, you just use it. Yeah. Okay, so uh, one question I wanted to ask you was whenever you're developing for multiple platforms, you know, like iOS, Android, Windows, you know, what are your thoughts on having a consistent UI? So basically, you know, taking your exact same UI and replicating on those different platforms versus tailoring to the OS, because I've heard people go back and forth on this. It's like, no, you you have to specifically designed for these platforms. And then other people are like, no, 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 no. you you want, you know, people are going to use your app across, uh, you know, different devices. So it has to be consistent. You know, there's, there's that whole variation there. So I, I just want to get your thoughts on that. Yeah. Um, it's funny. Like if you, if you talk to someone like, um, it's funny, I, I've met a few people who work at Target since I live in Minneapolis and they build the mobile apps for that. Um, mm-hmm. and so I've heard that conversation, like Target has a specific brand. We need to create this thing. We want it to work this way. And it doesn't matter if it's an iPhone and Android or a PC. Um, and like in general, a lot of people have the perspective that they're special, you know, like, oh, I'm special, like I'm different than everyone else. So I need to do something that kind of varies from the norm. And in general, like your relationship with that consumer, with with the person using your your app, like kind of ends at that app, like they have that phone for 100% of the time that they're using your app, right. And Mm -hmm. like, and maybe I built my perception because I built patterns for Windows, like in general, it's best to kind of follow the pattern for the platform you're using. some things are critical, like, you know, where, how you navigate, how you get back, how you scroll, scroll direction. Yeah, those are fundamentally those are f- different, especially ba- if there's like hardware back yeah, as an example. Like those are non-negotiable. Like you don't want to like, yeah. you know, leave the norm there. Um, some things are just like, they're nice, like, you know, consistency things. But like sometimes like if you're limited on cost or budget or, you know, standard, you know, compatibility across browsers or something like that. Like it might be okay to not go all of the way. Um, mm-hmm. The thing is something that's really nice, I think, and I mentioned Ionic earlier, they're uh, one of our central US startups uh, in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, yep. They've got a really nice um, framework that you design it, you, know, you can design it once and then the framework natively kind of adapts to the, the patterns and practices for each of those mobile devices. Um, and they kind of follow that same practice it's not a hundred percent like Ionic has its own theme, but all the things that you would expect and all those, those basic kind of design patterns and touch navigation patterns are consistent. So, um, I think if, you know, even if you're not using Ionic, you, you have a bunch of options available to you as, as long as you kind of look at those core basics. Um, but my opinion is usually like doing what people expect on that phone from the native apps is, is your best bet in terms of usability. But if you like have to make a compromise because of cost or time, or you only have one designer or your designer only knows one thing, then just know that that's a compromise. It's not the ideal thing. So, uh, David, the next thing was, you know, what kind of things uh, affect performance on a, on a touch device? Yeah. Great question. We spent a lot of time talking about performance in the talk Mm -hmm. because basically, you know, going back to that whole, you know, designing for anatomy, People have zero yeah. zero tolerance for any delays when you're when you're, when yeah. you're touching the screen because um, you know when people are touching it they actually trick their brain into thinking that they're manipulating a real object um, and that's yeah. what makes it good that's what makes it like better than using your mouse as soon as you kind of 
fall out of that magic spell, then it's like horrible. And when we're, you know, when you're looking at like touch interaction classes or like even just performance interaction classes, you may have seen, you know, like there's like less than 50 milliseconds is instantaneous. And then anything more than 50 milliseconds is like very fast up to 250 milliseconds. And then like you notice that after 250 milliseconds, it's like noticeable, you know, like there's like all, all these yeah. interaction classes. Have you ever run into that delay, that 300 millisecond delay? Do you know what I'm referring to? Oh, on the web? Yeah. Whenever you click something. Oh yeah. And it's funny because oh, it's frustrating. That, that all stems from like being able to press and hold on stuff. Or, or sc- I think it's also from it, my guess is it's also from scrolling. Yeah, exactly. Because whenever you, so just to explain to our listeners, I, cause I ran into this sort of fundamental issue. I created an angular app and it all, it's all run, running in the browser. So, you know, you expect everything to be instantaneous. So you were yeah. talking about that 50 milliseconds. So I expect when I push a button, the action will happen in less than 50 milliseconds. Cause you yep. know, why wouldn't it? Right. Yeah. And I noticed that there was always this delay, even when I was hit, pr- pressing the mouse button on the button. Yep. And then I started researching it. And sure enough, there's an artificial 300 millisecond delay bef- between clicking on it and actually having to do anything. Yep. And the reason is it's, it's not sure if you're on a touch device and you're, you're putting your finger down on the button, but your intention is to scroll. Like you're in, it doesn't know, it doesn't determine if you've started the scroll or not. Yep. So, and, and what was amazing was it was notice it was very noticeable to me. Oh yeah. And it's funny, like 200 milliseconds is like a lot of people don't even perceive that delay. Yeah. 280 milliseconds. Like it's like forever. It's yeah. funny. It's 300. Like, I could completely yeah. tell there exactly. was no question in my mind that there was something going on. Yep. So yeah. One of the things that we talk about in the talk is about like, you know, don't do things that kind of have little timers in there that like expect different behaviors based on how much time you're pressing or scrolling because um, it's like, it's no one's going to know what that timer is except for you. So, um, you know, it's one of the things that we talk about in terms of performance. Um, a lot of the performance stuff that you think about when you're building a, a, a mobile touch app is really just about making smart technology decisions. Like, um, you know, one of the, I have a few tips that I kind of, that I go through. One of them is like, if you have, if you're going to manipulate something or like, you know, do some scrolling or some pull to refresh fanciness, you always want to use the native kind of browser panning and browser scrolling code mm-hmm. because like the amount of technology that goes into make scrolling and panning work on a touch device on every platform, iOS, Android, Windows is incredible. You can never replicate in that in JavaScript. So do, like, yeah. just don't try. Um, it seems simple, but it's absolutely not. Oh my God. Cause like the scrolling stuff, what the, like what we did in windows is we had this kind of independent, um, direct manipulation scrolling where it takes the touch thread, like the touch hardware data, and it takes the graphic surface that's coming. That's like being rendered on the graphics card and it locks those things together, um, separate from the CPU. And then we just render what's on screen at 60 frames per second. So you can never be slow. It's always hardware to, to, to image, right? So anytime you bring in that CPU, like, like if, if you have a, like, let's say you're using the like JavaScript pointer touch events and you want to replicate scrolling, it's, it's very hard to get to 60 frames per second and to get to that sticky, like buttery, you know, touch, touch manipulation, um, feeling. So like, if you have the option of just using standard panning, it's going to be better than, than like writing JavaScript code or writing, writing CPU dependent code for scrolling. Mm-hmm. So, um, that's a big thing. That being said, um, if you are building something custom, like a custom button that you can drag on, you can still do very well. You can approach 60 frames per second as long as you don't do anything stupid by using pointer events with CSS transforms because even though you are using the CPU to calculate like where the finger is on the screen, as long as you're just doing math and updating like a basic CSS property, the CS, as long as the CSS property is a hardware accelerated thing, like a CSS transform translate, you know, Y by 10 pixels or moving something by a pixel every time you move your finger, then in general, the CPU is not going to get in the way of rendering that. If you try to do something that requires recalculating the DOM or like doing like a lot of like complex things, then you're going to like freeze the browser and it's just going to be terrible. So, um, that's, um, that's a big, uh, a big thing that we talk about is, um, you know, if you're going to do something that's touch dependent, um, make sure that you're using a hardware, um, a hardware 
transform or basically a CPU independent transform. Um, so you're not like doing math or doing something complex in the middle of that, tr- of that um, manipulation. Okay. So is there a difference in what we should be doing um, when we're looking at doing something on the web, doing something on mobile and even like native desktop clients? Uh, no. Well, I think on the web, no, like there's no difference between like what you would do on the web versus what you would do on like a native thing. Like, you know, like I was saying, all the capabilities are there. You know, you have to do a little bit of extra work because it's not all automatically available to you. But like you can build great touch stuff using web technologies. The the second half of your question, though, is um, mobile versus desktop, you know, is a little bit different. Right. Because you kind of have to ask yourself, when are people going to be using this? Right. Um, and you don't necessarily know, like we live in this world of iPad pros and surface pro threes and, you know, all these, you know, devices, which may to you as a developer, when you, when people are browsing that look to you like their native apps, like, I'm sorry, like their desktops might actually be someone touching it. And that is, um, you know, something that to consider, um, you know, in general, if, if you, if you just think about how someone is actually going to be holding holding hardware um, and have touch targets that are like reasonable, um, then you can go a long way. Um, I'm not a huge fan of like touch modes or like huge dichotomies in your UI, mobile UIs. In general, you can do a pretty good job scaling what, you know, how people are going to be using the app. Some people are totally fine using a, a productive, you know, productivity mode with touch. Um, some people, you know, even with their mouse, they want like a really simplified mode. So it's not necessarily a modality, you know, decision. Um, but it, it, it is a challenge that we all deal with now. And I think it will become easier as we like, as we settle on the form factors that people are going to be using over the next 10 years. Like we're in this kind of like time of unsure form factors, right? Right. Like how long are people going to be using desktops and like laptops with fixed keyboards? Um, yeah. How- we, we keep going back and forth on that. I don't know. Yeah. tons of debate and it's like, who knows? Well, yeah. Let's just wait. Yeah. Just yeah. wait and see. Exactly. So now you kind of have to do everything well. Um, th- I think there will be a time when we, we do settle on kind of what those standard form factors are and, um, and, uh, it'll become a, an easier problem to design for that, that continuum. Okay. So speaking about, you know, different size devices, what about like watches and bands and that whole thing? Cause I, I'm hearing, you know, people that have used like the Apple watch for a while they're, you know, they're just like, eh, I could take it or leave it. You know, it's just not <laughs> a big deal. And, and personally, like, you know, I use the Microsoft band, which I think is great. And the biggest thing for me is just getting notifications. Like I rarely interact with the actual band itself, mm-hmm. which is, is what makes the, the Apple watch unappealing. Cause it's really double the price to, to really show me the same information in, in a square instead of a rectangle. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if you have any, any thoughts or any experience, you know, trying to develop an app for, for a really tiny screen like that. Yeah. Um, I think you've hit on it. Like in terms of interactivity, I, I think that like touch on tiny screens like bands and I, Apple watches and stuff will go the way of the dodo. Mm-hmm. Um, like we have so many amazing sensors. Like you, you know, there's the sensors in the band that know like how your, you know, what your heart rate is and what mm-hmm. your hands are doing and three axis, you know, accelerometers and, and gyrometers and stuff. Um, but there's also all the other kind of sensors around you. Um, I think, I think we'll kind of go to this world where, um, I, I forgot what it was called. Uh, Google has this project where you're just kind of rubbing your fingers together. Have you seen that? And no. it kind of like, you can like scroll through stuff. Oh, that's we'll, interesting. We'll continue to get to this world where the actual direct, um, interactivity with user interfaces will, um, will be kind of in everyday objects or even without, you know, without a direct interface. Okay. So, and that's where like something like, you know, I will buy a band or an Apple watch when it's not technology. Like if it's just like, Hey, it can give me information and I don't have to like fiddle with it or configure. Yeah. It, it should be contextually aware. Yeah, exactly. And, and actually, so you're actually starting to see that in, in iOS nine. And I, yeah. I, I think it's pretty clever how they do it because they do these things where, well, first of all, like it'll show me the, um, you know, if I bring up like the search, it actually shows me 
the apps that I would use at that time of day. So like in the morning, it'll show me the calendar, Yep. Um, you know, cause I always check my calendar, you know, at the beginning of the day. And then it also like you plug your headphones in and it's like, Hey, it looks like, you know, like the last time, last few times you plugged in your headphones, you were getting in podcast listing mode. So it'll actually give you a shortcut to, to launch your podcast. Cool. And I think that's just like, that's like small, small glimpse, I think into the future. Cause really I want my phone to be, or whatever the, whatever thing is on my body. Like I want to go to a place and I wanted to understand why I'm there, what I want to do. And then give me that relevant information. We already have that with like weather, you know, yep. like and, and it's funny because it's like, it's like one of the only things we finally mastered. Like <laughs> when I travel and I look at the weather, guess what? I want to know the weather where I'm at, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, but it took us forever to get to that point. But if we can just like take that idea and multiply that times a hundred, then yeah, like you said, you don't have to touch the thing. You just, yep. you just look down and it's like, Oh, you know, right. I know why you were going to look at this. Yep, exactly. I totally yeah. agree. So I think yeah. that's the future of kind of interfaces. I think that they'll continue to be important. It's just, we're kind of in the dark ages for form factors as our yeah. thing. So speaking of another form factor, um, at work here, we have a perceptive pixel device. And I was wondering like, you know, what, what is, you know, I've never had to deal with a touch device that big before. So w- what's something that I might have to think about when I'm talking about like a 50 or an 80 inch screen? Oh, those are crazy. Those are so good. <laughs> you use I, the same interfaces on your band, yeah. basically. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It just just put a really big mobile app on there, like just like <laughs> three foot buttons. Um, no, those well, are I really know that, cool. I know that doesn't work because actually on like the first generation of Windows 8, they had a problem with the keyboard where like, they, uh-huh. they tried to make the keyboard real size. And in, in order of doing so, like you couldn't see what key you're typing because um, they were trying to scale the image of the key down way small, but that only covered like five or six pixels. Yeah. yeah. You couldn't, you couldn't read the letters at that point. It was, it was pretty comical. That got yeah. fixed. And I think eight one. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I actually know there's the guy is Finbar who, who was working on that. Uh, I worked on the touch keyboard in windows 8.1 and there was a huge debate around those guys are really cool. They're talking about how, like keyboards should always be the same size. Like, yeah, which always, makes it makes sense for makes efficiency, sense. specifically for efficiency of touch typing. Yep. However, we put it on. Yeah, we put it on a. We put it on a. What, what size was that car? Was that like a seventy inch touch? Yeah, I want to say it was. Yeah, a, yeah, we had a was, seventy and an eighty inch touch screen. Yeah. So if you imagine out of you know a ten eighty p screen doing a real size keyboard, your letters, the actual letters on the screen, only had about you know six pixels to tell you what the letter was. So you well, can see what the problem is. Exactly. And I think if we lived in a world where like, like the, the newer ones actually have like 4k screens, like if there are more pixels then it's a lot easier yeah. to see those things, but still there is kind of like a cognitive thing where like people don't want a little tiny keyboard on the bottom of a huge screen. It's just like, that's not how they're thinking they're going to use the thing. Right. Um, so we should have just not had the keyboard or we should have just like had a separate keyboard or something or had it big because that's just, you know, what you would expect. But going back to your question about, you know, how does the world change when you're dealing with, you know, this perceptive pixel? Those things are so cool. Um, they're really designed around multi-user, multi-pen, collaborative work, right? And um, you can really do a lot of things that you can't do, right? Like usually when you have like a projecting laptop, there's one person in control and everyone kind of has to communicate back to that person what they want on the screen, right? Maybe it's a prepared slide, maybe they're taking notes, but it's not real collaboration. It's like talk to the person who's coordinating what's on screen. Whereas with the Surface uh, Hub, it's all there. Everyone can grab a pen. I forgot how many pens it can support, like 10 or 20 or something like that. Um, everyone can grab a pen, go right on the screen. You can have slides um, also projecting there. You can have custom apps and maps where multiple people can grab and do different things. Um, and that's what makes it unique is that kind of multi-input, um, you know, designed around multi-user, multi-input, um, which, you know, really makes it not like anything out there. Carl, did you want to ask that last question or you want to move on? Oh, I thought you had the next one. Anyways, so what kind of affordances can we give users to allow them to learn and discover some of these touch interactions? Because I, I was working with somebody who has like a lot of stuff that's hidden under like a touch and press or long yep. press scenario or different kinds of swipes. So, you know, how can we, when we're building this, how can we let the users know that they even can do stuff with touch? Hey, hamburger. Yeah, yeah. Put a, put a, put a <laughs> this is when we're going to talk about that, aren't we? <laughs> put, a ha- put a hammer on it. Yeah, just yeah. put a little button there. Um, it's a great question. Um, 
it's funny what we talked about when we were doing some of the touch stuff on the touch keyboard and in in windows um there is there's kind of this 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 mantra we would say which is like early and often like you want to design for that first time and you want it to be great and you also want to design for every time right like the hamburger button might be pretty good or like just putting a button there might be good for the first time because it's like oh you see a button or you see a little tip that tells you what what this thing is it might be good for the first time but then like what about the hundredth time or the thousandth time that you do that um so in the in the talk at that conference we talked about micro interactions right like how many times when you're when you're pumping gas do you have like you know you you grab the gas pump and then like you're trying to pump and nothing's happening and then you go back and look at the screen and it's like would you like a receipt and it's like no like it just pump the gas and then I'll make that decision later and that's the sort of thing where like since all of us pump gas all the time it's the sort of thing that actually um becomes a frustration um if it's if it's the sort of thing that you only did the first time that you were pumping gas then oh it might actually be useful like i wanted to decide if i wanted to receipt or not so um when you're when you're kind of bu- building something for touch and it might be something that someone has not seen before um there's nothing wrong with like giving like a lot of the apps like sunrise or or you know some of these um touch first apps will actually go pretty far to tell you how to use the app the first mm-hmm. time and then but that doesn't remove the burden to make something that's just natural and intuitive anyway like you still might want to say hey there's this thing here this is like fundamental to how to use the thing but then also once you actually touch it it should what we say feed forward what's going to happen right we know about feedback like you push a button something happens but there's also like feed forward right you put your finger down on something and then guide me to what i should do how should i drag this thing or how should i which direction should i swipe so um in the talk we kind of built this little hint that tells that gives you a guide like you put your finger down on this button and once you actually touch it it um it drags in a specific axis and then it has a specific guide that says oh if you drag it to the top here it's going to be uppercase if you drag it down below it's going to be lowercase okay. and having those kind of hints and kind of like little tips as you go along and that feed forward to what you want to happen um can go a long way but you know in terms of that first onboarding experience the first time you use the app having like one or two cards that tell you like hey these are the fundamental ui elements that you need to know to use this thing there's nothing wrong with that just be really smart about not having like a thousand things that you need to know and tricks and gestures and stuff to use it because you know having like two things that are special are okay but having like 100 is just not something people are going to care to to learn or do right uh, any final thoughts this is all really good stuff but any anything else you wanted to mention um well no i mean we we talked through most of it um yeah. something that uh might be useful i don't know if you can put the link up somewhere mm-hmm. on my blog uh, dwcares.com I go through a bunch of the, you know, kind of principles of great touch interactions mm-hmm. and and we have a scorecard that kind of walks through what, you know, what things you need to consider when you're building something for touch. Like, you know, when you put your finger on down, there should be feedback, right? Yeah. You should have feedback the entire time during the interaction, you know, you should have feedback when you get to the threshold and it should be reversible and all these things that we kind of talk about. There's a scorecard that you can use to evaluate each of your touch interactions. And we kind of use a few examples like Twitter poll to refresh and, um, mm-hmm. you know, iOS mail. So something that you might want to check out. And then also, like I, like I said, I'm a hacker. So I'm always kind of building little things that have to do with touch. And I built a few controls like for poll to refresh and some custom touch buttons and stuff like that. that oh, are very cool. Up on GitHub and, um, and NuGet and stuff if you're, if you're building apps and you want to pull that stuff in. So. Okay. Yeah. Carl will include links to all that in the show notes. Great. Very cool. Okay, Carl, what do we have for the dev tip of the week? So I have two this week. The first one, in kind of honor of the topic today, there's a a page uh, from Microsoft on UX guidelines for custom user interactions. And this is just a landing page where you can get more details, but you can see how to design for touch, the touchpad, mouse, pen, speech, if you're going to use Cortana, accessibility, multiple inputs, like all the things that you should be looking at and taking into consideration. Uh, just a lot of really great guidance and guidelines there. 
Okay. That look, yeah, that looks pretty cool. I guess we didn't even have to have David on. We yeah. could have just sent out the list. <laughs> Done. Awesome. I'm just kidding. Awesome. So the other the other thing um, is uh, a project from uh, from Liger Shark, and they're a bunch of guys on the Visual Studio Extension team, including uh, Mads Christensen, Saeed Hashimi, Brady Gaster, and a bunch of other guys. It's called PS Build. So what it is, it's a project that allows you to use PowerShell. Uh, to interact with the msbuild.exe. And it just lets you, you know, pump in all your parameters and do essentially anything you want, but in a lot easier way with PowerShell. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, cool. And then, uh, David, we play a game on this show, which is a kid's game. Okay. Uh, but, you know, we're childish. So uh, what I need <laughs> to do, I need you to pick a number between one and four, and I'm going to ask you a question. Three. Three. Would you rather fall down 20 wooden steps by accident or fall down 40 concrete steps by accident, but while wearing a football helmet, knee pads, elbow pads, and wrist guards? Oh, the 20 wooden ones for sure. Okay. That's interesting. What's your thought process on that? <laughs> like, it just seems like you're still going to get concussed and the co- those concrete ones are going to be hard. Whereas like yeah. 20, 20 wooden steps, you still might get like a broken bone, but like it won't be so bad. Like you're not going to die. So yeah, I guess 40 is a lot, It's a lot of steps. You'd be like the whole time. You're like, when is this going to end? <laughs> It'd be like, you could like check your email and stuff while you're falling down. the stairs. Sounds <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> like a cartoon. Yeah. Okay. Carl pick a number. Uh, two, two. Would you rather have your parents give you a pet pig or a big pet snake? I'd take the pig. Yeah. Pigs are smart and they're actually, cl- you, you know, I guess it depends what kind of pig you get too, but you know, you get like keep it in the house. And, Absolutely, uh, and if you get like one of those potbelly pigs, they're kind of cool looking too. <laughs> <laughs> so you got an easy one. Okay, so David, uh, where can people find you? Oh, uh, you you mentioned uh, DW Cares. You're on Twitter as well, though. Yep, uh, Twitter on DW Cares. Uh, so find me there as well. Um, also, we're like I'm out in the community, so I go to a lot of the big collegiate hackathons, like M Hacks mm-hmm. and. Um, we have hack Illinois and stuff like that. So if you're in, in school, you can find me at some of the big hackathons in the area. Hack Texas is just in a few weeks here. Um, and then also I spend some time in some of the big startup accelerators. So like in Chicago, there's the 1871, um, accelerator in Minneapolis. I spend time at Coco, um, capital factory in Austin. Um, and then just out at meetups and community. So if you, if you have a meetup and you want me or my team to show up and hack with us or, you want to talk about Azure or, you know, talk about mobile and touch, um, you know, just feel free to reach out. Like we're, we're there for you and we're there to help make you successful. So, okay. Um, so basically just look around and, uh, uh, David might be standing right behind you right now. Yeah, I actually am. <laughs> yeah. You <laughs> No, seriously look around. <laughs> oh, gotcha. Okay. <laughs> Carl, where can people find you? You can find me at WPDevGuy.com or on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. Okay. And you can find me at ytechie.com or on Twitter at twitter.com slash ytechie. And David, thanks again so much for coming on here to talk to us. This was, uh, this was very informative. Thanks for having me. Be sure to subscribe by searching for MS Dev Show in your favorite podcasting app. Leave us a review at iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or your podcast aggregator of choice. Visit us at msdevshow.com where you can leave comments, check out our links, show notes, and more. Visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash msdevshow. You can send us your comments and feedback directly to feedback at msdevshow.com. 